0: Currency Press is Australia's foremost publisher of the performing arts. We've been sharing Australian stories since 1971, and we've always believed in theatre that raises more questions than answers. That's why we're sitting down with some of the country's most respected playwrights and talking to them about their work. Each month, we look at one play over 30 minutes, with insights straight from the source. Hello, I'm Toby Leon.
1: I'm Erin Dewar, and we are Not In Print.
0: Tommy Murphy is one of Australia's most beloved playwrights. His original stories and his adaptations have been warmly received, both critically and commercially. The adaptation of Timothy Conagrave's best-selling book, Holding the Man, is one of Tommy's standouts. It won several awards and was presented by some of the country's biggest theatre companies, playing to packed houses in most Australian capital cities and travelling overseas to New Zealand, the US and London's West End.
1: Timothy Conagrave passed away on the 18th of October 1994, a few months before Holding the Man was published. He will never know that it went on to win the 1995 UN Human Rights Award for Non-Fiction, or that the story of his long-term relationship with John Callio has touched countless hearts and minds. Tommy Murphy's 2006 stage adaptation faithfully captures that 15-year relationship, but also succeeds in transforming it into a unique theatrical experience. Speaking across generations, sexualities, and cultures, Holding the Man is a heart-wrenchingly honest portrayal of what it means to grow up, how we form relationships, and why we need to love and be loved.
0: Tommy, thank you for joining us to talk about your play, Holding the Man, which you adapted when asked by your longtime friend and collaborator, David Berthold, who was then artistic director of Griffin Theatre Company in Sydney. David had already had a a long history with the work. His friend, Nick Enright, the renowned playwright, helped Timothy Conigrave edit the manuscript, and Enright actually let David read a few chapters prior to publication. And then upon the day of its release, he devoured the book in one sitting like so many others have done since. It wasn't until 10 years later that he decided you were the playwright to adapt it. And he actually wasn't going to ask another writer if you said no. So can you tell us why you said yes?
2: Well, I think I knew within a few pages of reading the book that I connected deeply or felt I did to the character and the voice. I also pretty quickly saw the the opportunity for a theatrical uh, version of this story. It seems to lend itself to theatre in many ways, none the least because Tim was a theatre maker himself. It seems appropriate that a theatre maker's story would be told in the theatre. I was commissioned by the Griffin Theatre Company where Tim had worked, so there was a connection to that building. There was going to be scenes... Uh, in the play that was staged on a stage that Tim had uh, walked on himself. So there was the connection to that particular building. But then throughout the story, theatre is sort of this force that uh, sometimes unites the carriages and sometimes uh, breaks them apart as well. Uh, Tim and John meet via a school production of Romeo and Juliet. Um, Tim later when he gets into NIDA, the National Institute of Dramatic Art in Sydney, uh, that, that is an opportunity for their relationship to be put on hold for a while. Later on, Tim uh, works on Soft Targets, uh, Australia's first theatrical response to uh, the HIV crisis. And uh, it's amazing that at that time he is drawn to that work because he's uh, fascinated about HIV and as an activist, wants to uh, investigate it, but during the course of his research, finds out that he and John are actually infected. And then that goes on and on. I mean, then he does Thieving Boy, a play that he writes, and that uh, a reading of that at the Belvoir Theatre becomes uh, his reason for coming out to his friends that uh, he then has AIDS. All the way through this story, theatre is, is a force, of course, the great thing about a, a a character, Tim, I guess, in the play is, is a character. It's not it's not actually Tim Conagrave. It's this character that we've fashioned, inspired on uh, uh, from Tim. The great thing about a, a character, I guess, should be that you can't always pin them down, and I don't think we can with Tim. There are so many contradictions, that the mixture of his both the loyalty, but also the betrayals or that sort of relish for life, but also at times he's kind of anger as well. I find as a dramatist, as a general rule, and probably this is a, this is a principle that we, uh, that you borrow from an actor that you just don't judge your character. Mm. And, uh, I also just find there's a lot of value in, in fact, not only resisting judgment, but trying to create characters who you admire for their courage, that, often, I think, is a ticket to drama, actually, that, that if they're courageously doing something against the obstacles. Um, so it's important as a dramatist to admire and champion your characters in that way. So it's a very different thing to what Tim's doing as a, as a memoir writer, that, he's, um, that he is necessarily judging his actions. He is writing in review of decisions that he's made. And uh, I trust that even though sometimes there are some reports that he might have romanticised things, I don't think, given the book that, that we have now, that he shies away from uh, a- admitting his faults or um, courageously giving us access to every private space in his life.
1: I do want to talk about you know, how you approach that kind of responsibility a bit later, but we know really early on in this piece that holding the man is about well, it is a love story, and yet there's these kind of situational, situational circumstances that are not romanticised really. They're um, well, not in the way that we might expect. I don't think. I love there's this beautiful simplicity um, in the nervousness of this adolescent Tim when he says, "John Callio, will you go round with me?" And then comes this kind of unambiguous reply, "Yep." And so there's kind of these humble beginnings and the play goes on to make us question, really, why we hurt these people that we love. But yet these characters, and indeed you as the writer, cleverly avoid the traps of sentimentality and self-pity, I think, um, as we all journey towards this inevitable and tragic conclusion. How do you think the two men differ?
2: The difference between Tim and John is key to uh, this play Mm. and it probably is summed up in that quote there with that first phone interaction Tim uh, can monumentalize a moment and I think that exchange just comes from the book you know that John's response is just yep because he has a I guess a somehow a more uh, simple uh, approach to love I
0: remember reading the book and there's one moment where Tim has to try and understand John's love because he he feels that it isn't being returned in the way that he would like it to be. And he keeps searching for all of these clues and answers in in what he does. And he finds them there and realizes that he actually needs to verbalize things and to have things said and repeated, which is not surprising considering that he worked
2: in the theater, but John is, he shows his love. He doesn't express it in the same way. That's another moment, isn't it, where their key differences are on display. Um, That that moment never sort of found found an opportunity to be in the play. I love that moment in the book. And it's one of those moments in the book that is a real universal, I think. Uh, That's probably a conversation or a negotiation that's happened in many, many human relationships. Mm.
1: Do you think that this kind of dynamic with these two is symptomatic of the kind of sexual politics of the time, or, you know, is this just simply typical of love?
2: I mean, the sexual politics of the time, uh, put a particular pressure on, uh, the relationship because Tim, when he goes to university has this need to spread his wings, which Mm. is about Tim as an individual, but it is also about the the time and it is about, uh, yeah, a, a, a different, um sexual politics and, and he says to John, you know, that there are things that his generation are doing that he feels he will miss out on. Yeah. And I don't think that's just about him saying, uh, uh, I'm horny and I want (laughs) to, you know, step outside this relationship for a minute. I think that that because Tim is, is, um, so much an activist, that that is a, a genuine need of his. And, uh, that's something that, um, John in the story, tries to accommodate Tim and so often tries to accommodate Tim, but, um, uh, really struggles with that need in Tim.
1: Woody at one point says this thing about, um, it's not fair to expect our lovers to fulfill all our needs. Uh, who's Peter likes to play tennis. I don't like to play tennis. Mm. Um, you know, so he goes and plays with other people. Why can't we have sex that way?
2: Mm a good argument.
1: Well, I wondered if that was a, <laughs> a, almost a, <laughs> well, you know, is, is that a turning point for, um, for I, Tim at that point? Cause I feel like from then on he goes, well, hang on. Yeah, actually. I'm yeah. Go it's it's do
2: he does share throughout the book. He does, um, have different, find different people who are in that sort of role of counselor or teacher, like, mm. like Woody is, or in the book, Joe at, at, at school, um, He seems to be drawn to those people or one of the the Jesuits at school. Um, yeah, because he has a real hunger for learning. I've never questioned those, um, needs that he has or, or, uh, judged him for, um, uh, having, having those needs. I mean, sometimes he was secretive about them, but then is so very honest that he writes this memoir for all to read, but even at, at times he does in the story, um, propose things to John and courageously, um, admit things to John. Um, but yeah, John just doesn't see the world like that.
0: I'd really like to talk to you about the choices that you made to present very complex ideas and themes on stage, uh, in ways that I think are, are always playful, often exaggerated, but grounded and digestible as well Um, you really manipulate the crossovers between truth and performance and um, you set this up from the very beginning with the opening stage directions which read on stage on the night this play is being performed the actor playing tim enters and looks to the audience and then in a direct address he says simply let's begin and it signifies that this is a tale. It's a tale that's been transfigured onto the pages of a script so that it can be infused with a particular kind of truth that only actors, a director, and playwright can create. When adapting the work, what opportunities emerged that were only possible because you were adapting this story for the stage?
2: Yeah, well, a lot of them, of course, come out of a necessity in a way. Because when I, when I began this adaptation, I guess one of the first things that I did was draw up this sort of uh, document to organise my thoughts about every moment in the book and uh, who, who was in that moment um, and uh, what it might be on stage. And uh, so it was just a way of organising all of the material that I had. Then you, when I looked at that document, I also realised, well, I've got a lot of coming and going, lots of characters here, which is truthful for a life. You want this traffic of people that might arrive for a moment, but say something of huge significance and then disappear from the life. So, uh, looking at that document and knowing that I was going to be writing this play for the Griffin stables, that fantastic, but small, uh, diamond stage Hmm. with at that point, one entrance and exit. And I thought maybe I was knowing the budget constraints, thought maybe I was writing for five actors and then went, wow, I've got six, but a (laughs) hundred characters. So all of that told me that this was necessarily a theatrical experience, that there would be actors playing many, many roles and that they would be quick changing and that perhaps some roles would sort of blend into each other a little bit. And so that became an opportunity to try to find ways where the doubling is meaningful. So an example of that in the play might be when Tim is with his school buddies and um, he comes out to his schoolmates and the two characters that start to question um, what his parents' response had been to to coming out and, and, and how did they take it and the characters that are kind of a bit disapproving in that scene, in the very next scene, morph into Tim's parents. And so there's a way for them to, for the actors playing those many roles to carry something of a a journey across them. So it gave us a lot of, um, opportunity for fun, really, you know, fun in terms of the way that time might be used. Um, well, I guess the opportunity was there for Tim's state of mind to sometimes color, or impact what we see on stage.
0: I definitely noticed that um, right from the beginning as well in the opening scene when Tim's teachers are, are crying as they watch Neil Armstrong take mm. his giant leap for mankind and uh, Tim experiences his own cosmic moment in tandem with that leap. The hand of his boy of his boyhood crush Damien lands on his leg and Tim's desire for men is, is ignited in that moment. And then you connect this ignition to the moon landing as Tim's physiological changes are recorded by Armstrong and Houston Mission Control. It goes, the heart rate is off the graph. And then there's a a buzz coursing through him. Tim is growing up and beginning to imagine himself in, in a bigger picture. And with the moon landing, the rest of the world imagines the possibilities that might come from the shift in perception about what it means to be human in that moment. What resonances did you find between grand narratives shared by all mankind and the purely personal or specifically homosexual?
2: Well, I guess that um, the, those opening moments aimed at get signing a kind of agreement with the audience that, some, that the personal and the monumental or the historic will sit side by side, but that um, the focus is on this individual personal story and Tim as our storyteller will find those connections with uh, a broader history.
0: You reinforce it again, but in a different way um, in the next scene, which is backstage at a shopping centre. And we see ideas around identity and judgement and prejudice played out succinctly and with humour, which runs through the whole piece. Tim receives advice from his friend Phoebe, who is playing Dorothy in a stage version of The Wizard of Oz, as well as the actor playing the Scarecrow. And in their own way, they both tell Tim that he should reconsider his homosexuality and try sleeping with women. Here are two characters in a play giving advice as they play two other characters from one of the most iconic fantasy adventures of all time. This moment is, is so multi-layered and so rich with meaning and it's it's taken straight from the book. There's really no invention as such, but you felt it was important to include in detail. What is it about this moment that you thought was so important?
2: Well, I I really liked hearing your assessment of it. I hope it does those things. That's Mm -hmm. nice of you to say it. Um, I was drawn to it because it's in the book. And and for those reasons you said, that we can see characters in costume, we can um, point a finger again to to theatre, but also that um, in story terms, it was a really key moment um, for Tim uh, as he, uh, as we learn what this object of his desire is, uh, and that is to be even able to talk to John Callio, let alone ask him out on a date.
0: I thought it was so strange and I could relate to Hearing bad advice that might be benign, completely <laughs> misguided though, and somehow wanting to change myself because it felt like I should try and fit in, but fit it's into funny, what? You Here know? I am
2: saying that I don't judge my characters. That guy's an asshole. He's a <laughs> complete asshole. That's what I found so funny about it. He's so that, misguided. You know,
0: if you look at the kind of the the folly of, of what they're doing is echoed in the characters that they're playing in The Wizard of Oz. I mean, Dorothy is a well-intentioned but naive girl wandering through a, a parallel universe universe that she created in a dream and the scarecrow is a straw-filled brainless decoy. So, you (laughs) know, kind of got this (laughs) really funny resonance. And an aspiring actor.
1: I think it's quite pointed though when the scarecrow says, you know, don't you think it's a bit early to be making these decisions about your sexuality? Mm. Yeah. And Tim goes, well, I don't think it's a decision. Mm. You know, like I find that particularly pointed.
2: Yeah. He's like that, isn't he, Tim? Like throughout the book as well that he's so, uh, Um, he's such an articulate, smart guy, but he is really sure about himself uh, on things like that. Um, you know, and uh, in all the interviews I did, people would try to describe what Tim was like. And certainly that, um, that, that, that he was so articulate was something that everybody would always say, but also that he was, um, brash and could put people offside Mm. and, um, everyone said that as though it was a secret, but it was like, it's so obvious that he was, um, uh, you know, sometimes didn't have a filter and, and would pick fights and would, uh, would enjoy an argument, but, uh, and was a, um, a truth teller. But of course that's the reason why we have this great memoir because he wasn't afraid to, you know, uh, tell secrets. Yeah.
0: I wanted to talk to you about familial constructs in the piece because there's the biological, the unexpected, and then the cherry-picked, which I think we can all relate to.
2: There is surprising acceptance that Tim and John encounter, which takes them by surprise in the story as well. But that's not to say that they're... um, I mean, they're up against it and that there are forces that aren't okay with the idea of, of two men being together. But I think their school friends, even if they wouldn't normally be okay or tolerate homosexuality. They do acknowledge something special about Tim and John. Maybe some of this is particular to Tim's character as well. Tim is so engaged with the experiences of his life that he'll probably also enthuses other people about them as well. He's so engaged about everything, whether it's sexuality or politics or or whatever. It's I, I can imagine that you sort of... Uh, would become, uh, um, hooked on his storytelling or engaged by it. And maybe that's, that helps people, helped people sort of accept something that was difficult, but they are up against it. And that conflict with John's family in particular is something that then blisters throughout the story. And even when there is acceptance expressed like those, the priest at the end of the story or the, um, uh, the headmaster at the end of the story, it might be acceptance, but it's that kind of acceptance that doesn't go all the way. It's not actual equality. It's
0: Tolerance,
2: it's tolerance, maybe, yeah. Mm. And Tim, ha- but Tim has to say at the end that, that you know when he's excluded from the the, the funeral, uh, he has to say this this is my husband for the last mm. fifteen years, and it's never really um, seen on those equal terms until the funeral notices try to correct that at the end of the story. I guess I have to be careful about how I speak about those characters because in the play, they are characters inspired by Tim's impressions and opinions yeah. of, of what happened. And so, um, I can never, um, confuse them with real people that, um, that, that, that went through tremendous suffering and were, uh, brave in the acceptance that they, um, found, uh, um, and perhaps also understandable given their, the grief, uh, in the, um, in the, the attitudes that they held at the time. Mm. Um, but, um, I think that the character of Lois certainly does, um, bravely come a long way, uh, uh, to express or acknowledge, um, that John loved Tim, Mm. Um, and that's something that happens uh, in that sort of vigil that they keep before John dies.
1: On winning the New South Wales Premier's Literary Award for Best Play, the judges cited that the personal and the political deftly intersect here, as the story is, in many ways, also a history of the gay pride movement in Australia. Furthermore, Benjamin Law, in an article for the Wheeler Centre titled Holding the Man and AIDS in Australia, having read... Tim's book and seen your play, he wrote, The Australian model is still regarded as one of the world's swiftest and most successful responses to HIV. It's a history of which more Australians should be proud, but so few of us even know
2: it happened. Do you think that's Absolutely, because... The thing that, that HIV and AIDS uh, does is that it requires a government to grow up and acknowledge that people have sex with many people, mm. that they uh, sometimes inject drugs, they might pay for sex. there are these activities which are completely normal and common and uh, and governments would probably prefer that they didn't happen. But if there is something positive that comes out of a crisis like this is that the government has to listen and acknowledge that those things happen, particularly when those activities are suddenly making people at risk. Mm. And so the Australian response to it was extraordinary. And you can see in the numbers, if you compare it to, for example, the United States, more lives were saved here and uh, there's a, that's because the government acted quickly and responsibly and spoke to people who were experts in the field and people that may not have otherwise been brought to the table. But I I don't don't know. i mean, even saying that I don't want to sort of limit the reading of the play just to the disease and the health crisis because that's not true of Tim's book either.
1: And also I think Tim says in his speech, you know, at, at the stables, about um, the media doesn't deal with stories about people affected except the sex, death,
2: horror shit. Mm. I love that. I hope the thing that we inherit from the book is a real relish for life, particularly in the first half, mm. that there's a celebration and a love for life and, uh, and uh, hopefully also we make use of Tim's wit as well that, that, and that I, I really enjoyed about this hearing the audience enter it um, through laughter and sort of connect with the characters through humor. Um, and there is an emotional shift as we move towards the end of the story. But, um, yeah, that's, uh, that's, that's different to just the sex death horror shit as (laughs) Tim (laughs) describes.
1: So we have talked a bit about, well, quite a bit about adaptation, but I just wanted to pick up on a couple of things in there. What challenges affected your approach to realizing the complexity of Tim and John's
2: long-term relationship? The thing that I've tried to keep sight of in the story is there's all these challenges to their relationship that they survive. So I imagine, particularly because this is a um, story that begins with um, that production of Romeo and Juliet, that these lovers are destined to be together. And as I was saying, that's probably the thing that their friends acknowledge, that people throughout the story have to come to terms with, that they will be together forever, no matter what. So they survive that, the um, disapproval and then the active attempts to separate them. They survive the internal conflict in their relationship when Tim needs to spread his wings. And there are all of these threats to being together forever, particularly the illness, of course, and their different different responses to being diagnosed and then their own mortality. But I imagine that they do get to be together forever because Tim writes the book so that they, they even transcend death in that way. And that, mm. that Tim and John live on in this really unique way because of the success of Tim's book, that strangers are picking up that book all the time and kind of falling in love with them and mourning them. And so uh, the are the theatre companies. And theatre companies. Yeah, I, I like to, to think of that um, as sort of a, a thing that drives the story in a way and then also becomes a source of the drama throughout.
1: There's these final poignant lines in the book that have come straight off the page in, onto the stage. Um, Tim says, I guess the hardest thing is having so much love for you and it's somehow not being returned. I develop crushes all the time. But that is just misdirected need for you. You are a hole in my life, a black hole. Anything I place there cannot be returned. I miss you terribly. I just, I mean, I read that passage and, and I, I mean, I want to cry now. And I just think there must have been in setting out those moments in the book for yourself, like you were saying at the very beginning, were there moments that you just went, I just, there's no way that's not going Yeah, it was always
2: clear. It was always clear how it would end. I think, um, it was always clear that it would be Tim's words that, that would, um, finish the play. Um, I don't think we ever even toyed with any other solution there. It always felt that, 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 um, last love letter that, that Tim writes would become the monologue that finished the play. Uh, I don't know when that decision was made, if it was made at all. It just felt that that was the right, right way to end.
0: The last question that I wanted to ask is part question, part proposition, part statement, really. I don't think anyone can dispute the success and the emotional power of the story. And in another quote from David Berthold's introduction to the double edition of Holding the Man and Strangers in Between, he remarks that you said reading the book was like reading your own life, even though you were of a different generation and had no experience of HIV and AIDS. A lot of people who have read the book feel the same way, and I just I wonder what you think are the elements of this story that reach beyond time and place.
2: It's really hard to pin it down. Maybe that's its success—that that that you can um, uh, project your own life onto it. You can connect deeply with it, no matter I think your experience, really, because I've met those readers that have no first-hand experience of either, not only the, the sort of sexuality of the story, but you know, the time and place either that, that, that connect deeply with the material, that is an extraordinary power about Tim's, uh, memoir. And, uh, you know, it, it doesn't only transcend gay literature, it, it's unique among, um, AIDS literature as well. There's something that makes this one stay with us that's, that's more than it's, than it's era and it shifts, you know, I mean, I imagine that part of Tim's reason for writing it was a need to tell, which is kind Mm -hmm. of political, you know, that it was people didn't know enough about the, the personal story of, of, of living with AIDS at that time. That agenda isn't its reason for being now. And of course it's very different for a play as well, you know, that we're doing something very different to what Tim was doing and Tim was Courageously documenting his time and we're now viewing it in the play as history, and that's probably what a reader brings to it now.
0: Thank you so much for being with us today and taking the time to talk about your play.
2: You have clearly, yeah, put a lot of prep into it, so thanks.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of Not in Print. You can find out more about Currency Press and view our full catalogue at currencypress.com.au.
1: If you have any questions or comments about this episode, or would like to make a suggestion for future episodes, please let us know via Facebook or Twitter.
0: This episode was recorded on the 2nd of February 2013 by
1: Rachel Corbett, produced by Currency Press.